Alright everybody, welcome back. This is Didactic Mind, uh, episode 59, Burning Books and Burning Truths. Uh, welcome back everyone, well, very warm welcome as always to my long-time subscribers, um, my long-time listeners, my long-time readers. Uh, always a pleasure to have you with me, and uh, thank you as always for your continued patronage and for listening to me rant on for the next hour or so. Um, it's always a uh, it's always a kind of a, a humbling experience to know that there are people out there who like what I say and um, enjoy listening to what I say. So that's really, really cool. Um, but I have some uh, good news. Uh, this podcast is now up and running on four, yeah, four different uh, streaming services. Uh, you can now download this podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, um, Spotify, and I just got the email earlier today saying that uh, this podcast is live on Pandora. Uh, I'll be supplying all the links in the description box, I think, so you'll be able to access this uh, hour of awesomeness uh, on your preferred platform. I think it's also available on uh, Audible, but you know, I haven't checked on it, so for all intents and purposes, it probably isn't. Um, you know, don't don't assume that just because I say something, it's true, right? Um, but today, I oh, uh, and of course, if you have not already uh, subscribed to this podcast at Podbean, uh, please make sure you hit the subscribe button over there. If you have not subscribed to my mailing list, please make sure you hit the uh, subscribe button in the form, um, either on the right-hand side of the page or down at the bottom. Uh, there's also a link embedded in there someplace. I send out periodic emails just to keep people apprised of things that are going on and to uh, promote special products, uh, especially my products, which will be coming out uh, over time, you know, once I find the time to do the damn things. Um, but we have uh, a lot to discuss today, and I want to leave to one side the politics stuff, because Yes, things are very bleak. I just want to take a few minutes to talk about it, and then, you know, we'll just put it to one side. Yes, things are bleak. Yes, the system has failed utterly and completely. Um, you are no doubt aware at this point that uh, the Supreme Court has punted on the uh, lawsuit brought by Texas and I think 21 other states, so basically half the union, more or less, against um, Michigan Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia with respect to their election results. And the, the, I mean, the lawsuit was not anything radical. It basically just said, look, these, these states have broken their own election laws. Um, and the, uh, the Supreme Court needs to rule on whether or not their electoral processes are constitutional and whether or not, um, the selection of the electors should now go back to the state legislatures, which is exactly the constitutional process. That's how it's outlined in the Constitution. If there is a disagreement, um, the state legislatures have the final say. And that is what should have been done, but it was not done. Um, the conservative justices, uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and uh, Amy, Comey, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, apparently had nothing to say on the subject. Justices Alito and Thomas strongly dissented from the decision not to hear the case. Um, Justice Chief Justice Roberts, who is basically a closet liberal, and that much has become very clear over the last few years, uh, made definitely sided with the other three liberal justices and uh, refused to hear the case. Um, and there are unverified reports. If you go onto Vox Day's blog, I'll provide a link in the description box about it. But there are unverified reports saying that um, the the closed doors discussion on whether or not to hear the case descended into a screaming match between Chief Justice Roberts and uh, Justices Alito and Thomas and uh, Justices... Um, Gorsuch and ACB, and one other, I think, walked out um, pretty much, you know, stone-faced. They weren't happy, they weren't unhappy, they were just neutral. 
Um, the liberal justices walked out feeling pretty happy. Um, but yeah, I'll basically, uh, yeah, ACB and Gorsuch didn't seem phased at all. So essentially what we're looking at is a Supreme Court that has refused to do its duty, that has failed to stop the utter corruption of a legitimate election. Every level of the system, except the executive one, has failed. The legislature has failed to do what is right, um, not just at the national level, but at the state levels as well. The Republican-run legislatures in the states should have overthrown all of this nonsense in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, uh, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, the moment it happened. The evidence of fraud at this point is overwhelming. It is astonishing how much fraud occurred and to what extent. Um, the evidence is, I mean, it's on multiple fronts, sworn affidavits, video evidence, uh, written evidence, Dominion voting machines that weren't capturing things correctly, software evidence, legal evidence showing that uh, Dominion is owned by a series of shell corporations, you know, all of this crap. And by the way, the, the, the investigation into Dominion being, or subsidiaries of Dominion being owned by shell corporations, this comes from CNN. The Clown News Network, of all places, actually did, did some homework a long time ago. This was back when they were kind of, sort of, maybe, marginally still a news organization instead of the, the, the hornalists and prostitutes that they are now, you know, thoroughly deserving of uh, military tribunals for treason at this point. Um, that was back when they actually had some shreds of integrity. Uh, obviously, that's long gone now. But all that is left is for President Trump to make a momentous and dreadful decision. Either he walks away and um, basically abandons his freedom, his family, his fortune, his company, his legacy, his supporters, and his nation to the ravages of the far left, the globalists. Or he takes command, marches a few marine expeditionary units across the Potomac, uh, declares martial law, invokes the Insurrection Act, and starts hanging traitors from bridges. No one wants to be in that position, least of all President Trump, because he is, after all, the great negotiator. That's his, his bailiwick. That's what he's good at. Nobody wants to be in that position. And you can see it in the way President Trump has been acting of late. You can see it in his, uh, in his appearance at the Georgia rally. You can see it in his, the very few public interviews that he's done since election night. He is exhausted. And he is looking down the barrel of a truly horrible decision. And I don't know if he's going to make it. I don't know if he can make it. I don't know if he has the guts and the balls to do it. Because this is far worse than becoming Caesar. This is much worse than marching across the Rubicon, uh, as Caesar did with his weakest and least experienced legion, by the way, or maybe not his least experienced, but definitely not his best legion. He marched across the Rubicon with one legion, 2,000 and 70 years ago. And he conquered Rome. He took over and he became the very first true emperor. So this is not without precedent, but can Trump become a Caesar? I don't know. Will he become a Cincinnatus instead? If you don't know the difference between um, Cincinnatus and Caesar, I highly recommend you go look them up. Or you can subscribe to my mailing list where I actually describe the differences between the two and I just did in an email. And I'm not going to break it down for you here. But no, that's, that's all I have to say about that. Either Trump will cross the Potomac, or he won't. Either way, America is done. Okay, the idea of a Republican America, a Republican with a small r, you know, Republican government America, is done. It's gone. So let's all stop pretending that the system can be salvaged, because it can't. Let's all stop pretending that America can stay together as one united nation, because it can't. It's going to break apart. The only question left is how the breaking will happen. People like me pray and hope fervently that it will happen peacefully, that black America will separate out from white, 
that the coastal elites will separate out from the heartland, and that it will all be done more or less reasonably peacefully with a minimum of bloodshed. Pray God that that's what happens, because the alternative of neighbor fighting neighbor and blood running in the streets is too horrifying to contemplate. I mean, imagine, try to remember, some of the younger listeners may not get this because you won't remember this. Try to remember what happened in the Balkans in the 1990s, uh, when the U.S. very, very stupidly intervened. Now imagine that about, oh, 50 times worse. That's what we're looking at in the States. Pray God that doesn't happen. And pray God that the God Emperor has the stones to do what is necessary, to cross the Potomac and start hanging people off of bridges, because that's what it's going to take. So, with that cheery thought in mind, um, I want to switch gears completely, because I've been doing a lot of, uh, not research exactly, but I've been watching a lot of videos on apologetics um, and Christian ministries, uh, defending um, against charges of biblical corruption. And some of the information that I've seen is absolutely fascinating. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fascinating debates between Christian apologists and Islamic polemicists. And I wanted to make that the focus of this week's discussion because of some of the new material that's come to light in the last few years, especially this year. 2020 will be remembered by most of us as the year of the scandemic, the year in which the world collectively lost its mind and surrendered in fear and and cowered before a disease that actually has about a 0.2% fatality rate of all the people infected, actually. And if you go by some of the, the better estimates out there, it's probably more like 0.138%. And even if you're over the age of 70 and you have pre-existing conditions, your odds of survival are still better than 95% in general. I mean, not always, but in general. And we have treatments for it. As um, I was watching some testimony just today of a, a, a very well-respected physician in front of the Senate panel. I think it was a Senate panel. And he basically said, he said the name of some drug. I forget exactly what it was. Um, I'll try to find the video and, and or link to it later on. Um, and he said that we have a drug treatment, that it's a prophylactic treatment. It's an antiparasitic drug that if you take it, you will not get this disease. It's a cheap, it's, uh, it's a cheap, effective drug. It's not hydroxychloroquine. It's something else which has been used in the third world for antiparasitic purposes and has proven to be incredibly effective. And I believe him because we know that hydroxychloroquine sulfate, which is used against uh, malaria and similar diseases, um, is effective against COVID-19. It stands to reason that an antiparasitic drug that's pr that that is used for prophylactic purposes would do the same thing. So um, we will remember it as the year of the scandemic. Those of us who have eyes to see and ears to hear will remember it as a scandemic. The rest of you will remember it as a pandemic, which supposedly brought the world to an end, and it did not um, at all. So, um, now, other people, however, will remember 2020 as the year in which uh, Islam was revealed to be the fraud that it is. And I don't say those words lightly. I know the, uh, these are hugely offensive words to a lot of people. Try to understand where I'm coming from. I'm not saying this to anger you. I'm saying this to point out to you certain truths that you don't want to see. Islam, as we know it today, is a man-made religion. And 2020 was the year in which all of this stuff was exposed, probably for the first time at the popular level. This has been known at the academic level for many years. I mean, much of it has been known by Islamic scholars for many, many years at the academic level. And they've been terrified to say anything in public. But on June 8, 2020, uh, Sheikh Dr. Yasser Qadi, I hope I pronounce, I, I, I'm not pronouncing his name right because I don't have the voice to pronounce uh, either uh, Pakistani or uh, Arabic names uh, properly. But Sheikh Dr. Yasser Qadi, who is one of um, Islam's foremost intellectuals in the West, did an interview with uh, an 
a chap of Egyptian origin named Muhammad Hijab, who is one of the world's most popular um, Islamic missionaries on YouTube. He, he he delivers what is called dawah, which is dawah, which is Islamic missionary work, and he does it through YouTube. So he's he he tries to convert people to Islam. Uh, now the background to this is that back in 2014, um, the a, a young lady, well, she was young at the time, but I mean she still is relatively young, but a young Turkish ex-Muslim who converted to Christianity, daughter of a of an Islamic preacher herself, named Hatun Tash, was uh, in North Africa, and she was wandering around. And she happened to stop in a bookstore in a market someplace, and she said, uh, you know, um, can you give me a copy of the Qur'an? And the shopkeeper was like, which one? And she said, wait, wait, what? What do you mean, which one? To understand why this is so shocking to a Muslim, you have to understand how Muslims think about the Qur'an. At the popular level, in the streets, among Muslims, they are told one very clear... Th well, they're told a number of things about the Qur'an. They are told basically four things, or five if you extend it a bit. Number one, the Qur'an is eternal. It has existed since the beginning of time alongside their God, Allah, in heaven. Number two, the Qur'an was revealed. It was sent down to their so-called prophet by an, by an angel named Jibreel, which they consider to be Gabriel. Number three, the Qur'an is complete. There has never been um, an incomplete version, uh, or that's not quite true. There, the Quran in its original form was complete. It cannot be added to, it cannot be subtracted from. And the Quran is unchanged. Uh, meaning that when the Quran was revealed to their prophets, supposedly between 610 and 632 AD, from that time to the present time, there has never been so much as a single chapter, so much as a single verse, so much as a single line, so much as a single word, so much as a single letter. Some Muslims would even go so far as to say so much as a single dot or tittle has not been changed in the Qur'an. Most Muslims that you talk to on the streets would say, our Qur'an today is the same, exact same Qur'an that it was uh, 1400 years ago in the time of the Prophet, um, whatever the, the word is. Um, peace be upon him, or whatever, however they pronounce it in Arabic, I forget. Anyway, 2020 was the year in which this was revealed to be a total lie. But the roots of this lie, the roots of this exposure, were set back in 2014. Hatun Tash went into this bookstore and said, how many Qurans do you have? And the shopkeeper said, well, I've got this one, I've got, you know, Al-Duri, Al-Qasai, al um, I've got uh, Ibn Amr, Ibn, Ibn, uh, Ibn Kathir, uh, Warsh, Hafs, uh, and like, a whole bunch of others. And she was like, wow, give me one of each. So she brought back, I think, 23-something different Qur'ans, and she brought them to London, and um, she analyzed them. And she brought them to Dr. J. Smith, and Dr. Smith, you know, one of the foremost um, Christian polemicists out there, uh, he didn't understand what the what the point was at first. He was like, oh, "These are just these are just variant readings, Hatun. These are not uh, these are not significant in any way." And she just looked at him and she said, "Jay, you don't understand. You stop stop looking at things from your academic, lofty academic perch. Try to go down to the level of the man on the street. Imagine being told all your life that there's only one Quran, that there's only one damn bug, there's only one um, revealed word of God, and now." Imagine being told that there's 23 different versions of it, and now imagine being told that between just one, just between one version and another, there are 5,000 differences between the texts. What would that do to your faith? If you're told as a Muslim everything is complete and unchanged and has never changed since the time of the Prophet, what is that going to do to you? It's going to destroy your faith. It's going to wipe out two, 1,400 years worth of superstition and nonsense. And it's going to leave you reeling from it. And that's what happened to Muhammad Hijab, because um, he was standing there in the crowd when Jay Smith and Hatun Tash revealed all this stuff to the crowd. And apparently he suffered something of a crisis of, con of, of, of faith, as well as knowledge. Because you can see in a video of him up on Fander Films, he's waving to the Muslims and telling them, come away, come away, you know, don't listen to these people, don't give them any credibility. 
when in reality what they had done was simply destroy the entire uh, scriptural basis for Islam in one shot. It was gone. So now fast forward to 2020 where Sheikh Yasser Qadi is trying to explain these, what he calls, holes in the standard narrative. He literally says in that video, which he's since desperately and frantically tried to spin away and he's he launched multiple copyright claims against people who use that video, uh, he said, uh, the standard narrative has holes in it. This, there, the, the, there are things in the standard narrative which our top scholars are unable to explain. And what he was referring to was this issue of Ahruf and Kira'at, basically different readings or different versions of the Quran, which he himself is on the record as saying, there are no two versions, there are no two Qurans which are different in any way. You know, they're identical all the way through. Now, I have often said that Christianity and Islam are mirror images of each other, and that is true. That's not my formulation, that is uh, the, the opinion of a number of um, other uh, Christians out there, much, much smarter, much more well-educated, much more well-grounded than me. I should point out that uh, I make no claim whatsoever to be an original thinker, because I'm not. I just take what I've heard and I try to synthesize it and pass it on to others. So, if you look at the claims that Islam makes and you look at the claims that Christianity makes, you'll see that they're mirror images of each other. Now, Muslims accuse us Christians of having corrupted scriptures, which makes no sense because their own book says you must trust the scriptures and the revelations to the Jews and the Christians, the people of the book. Um, they have been given a revelation, and that revelation is intact and complete, and you should trust them. That's what their Quran says. It's, it's in there. I mean, if you don't believe me, go watch uh, some of David Wood's videos on the subject, or Sam Shamoon's, or uh, Al-Fadi's videos on Syria International. It's all there. And you will see exactly what I'm talking about. There are specific passages in the Quran that say this. But Muslims insist that our scriptures are corrupted. Why do they say that? Because they look at all of these many, 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 many different translations. You know, the, the CSB, the NIS, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, the ESV, the NASB, the uh, RSV, the who knows what V. You know, the, they look at all these translations and they're like, they're all different. You must, the scriptures must have been corrupted. Really? Okay. Prove it. And the moment you try to tell them to prove it, they have no idea what to do. Here's why. When I say that Islam and Christianity are mirror images of each other, I mean it. Because if you look at their claim that our scriptures are corrupted, it's actually their scriptures that have been corrupted. And I'll get to why, I hope, later on. On the Christian side, it is true. We have a huge number of scriptures that are out there. Um, but that's actually a good thing. We have an enormous number of manuscripts to choose from. Uh, Dr. David Wallace has done a number of presentations about this. He's done a number of debates with Dr. Bart Ehrman from UNC Chapel Hill. Dr. Bart Ehrman was, is a former Christian who kind of became an agnostic because of this issue of um, variations between all the different texts. And Dr. Bart Ehrman is a very, very smart guy, so I don't want to hear any Christians saying, you know, I don't believe in Dr. Bart Ehrman, he doesn't know what he's talking about. His conclusions may be wrong, but his academic credentials are impeccable. He went through, and he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, which I've got, I've never read it. Um, I meant to uh, read it at some point. I bought it back when I was an atheist, and I was like, aha, finally I have something that gives me evidence that, uh, you know, the Bible is corrupt. And this was, you know, over 10 years ago. Um, boy, do I feel stupid admitting that now, but anyway. Uh, it's still sitting in storage somewhere, or I may have gotten rid of it. Uh, I forget, but anyway. Dr. Bart Ehrman and Dr. David Wallace have held a number of debates, and what's become clear in those debates is that once you look at where these variations come from, they're not a big deal. They really don't change any doctrine. And Bart Ehrman himself will admit this. He will admit openly, and he says so in misquoting Jesus, in, particularly in the later revised editions with you know all the subsequent footnotes added and so on. Nothing that is changed in all the New Testament manuscripts that we have changes one fundamental aspect of doctrine. Not one change does that. Now, 
When Muslims say to us, your scriptures are corrupted, what do they mean? Well, again, lots of translations. Okay, so what? Go back to the manuscript evidence and let's look at that. Now, when it comes to the manuscript evidence, and, and uh, I'm looking at, uh, I'm quoting from multiple sources here, Dr. David Wallace, Dr. J. Smith, uh, and a few others, um, the, the Christian world suffers from an embarrassment of riches, and that's really the truth. At present, we have found 5,300 or more Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We have over 10,000 Latin Vulgates. We have over 9,000 translations of the New Testament into other languages. We have over a million quotations from the early church fathers, spanning you know across all the centuries. We have over 80,000 of them related directly to the New Testament. Over 30,000 of them date to before 300 AD. If we did not have any of the manuscript evidence, none whatsoever, if we just threw out all the manuscripts and said, well, please don't do this, please, please, please don't do this, but if we tossed out all the manuscripts and only went back to the quotations from the early church fathers in Latin and Greek and Syriac and Aramaic and Hebrew and so on and in all the various languages, if we did that, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament, less 11 verses. That's it. 11 verses. Now, there are 138,000 words. I think David Wallace has the exact number in one of his lectures. 138,000 some words in the whole of the New Testament. All of it. You know, If you add up all the um, 27 odd books of the New Testament, again, don't quote me on these numbers. I mean, you can go look it up for yourself. If I misquote a number, I'm providing the source. You can go see for yourself. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, right? But I'm transparent about this. You want to go look up the source? Go look up the source. The sources uh, say that the New Testament has this many words. If you take all of the extant New Testament manuscripts that we have available to us, how many differences are between are there between them? Well, the latest count is about 500,000. So we have more than about three differences per word of the New Testament between all the various translations. Now, that's, that's sobering. That seems scary. That seems depressing. It seems as though we have a huge problem. Or do we? Do we really have that big a problem? Because once you start examining these 500,000 odd differences, what do you find? About 100,000 of these differences come from uh, some scribe inserting somewhere in one of the verses uh, it says, Jesus and the Twelve went upstairs to eat. Something like that. And, uh, I, again, don't ask me where. It's, it's somewhere in the, in, the, in the text. Some scribe somewhere added in, Jesus and the Twelve disciples went up to eat. And that's been copied over you know, all the centuries since then. That accounts for about 100,000 of the 500,000 differences we have so far. Most of the rest come down to different spellings of Greek names and different word orders and different emphases on different words because Greek, ancient Koine Greek is a very complicated language. I mean, you listen to David Wallace talk about it, it's like, holy crap. The, he gives an example in one of his lectures at Biola University, which I, I listened to. I was just, I was fascinated the whole way through. I was like, wow, this is really cool, uh, which is unusual for me um, on the subject of dead languages. Um, but he was basically saying... If you tried to formulate John loves Mary in ancient Greek and you add up all the ways and means and you know approaches that you could say John loves Mary there's like 500 different ways you could do that and he's not joking about that this is a I mean the guy is a Greek scholar he has a a, a he wrote a master's thesis about some some lack of a particle in Greek and another and a PhD thesis on the actual particle in Greek, and he says those will cure the most hopeless insomniac. So this is a guy who knows his shit, right? This, this he really knows what he's talking about. He's basically saying that if you add up all those ways, it's over five hundred ways to say John loves Mary, and then if you change the verb for loves to something that's a little bit different, you know, slightly different emphasis, but means more or less the same thing as loves, to love. Then the number of differences skyrockets to about 1,200. 
Think about that for a moment. 1,200 different ways to say John loves Mary in ancient Greek. Now go back to all of the differences between all the manuscripts in the New Testament. And what do you see? The vast majority of them, like 98% of them, are just spelling changes or inconsequential changes of grammar or a particle missing here, a, uh, a verb change there. They're not serious. There are only about 2% of those uh, scribal changes and insertions and deletions and amendments that are serious. Such as what? Okay, well, in Mark chapter 5, apparently, um, again, don't look at me for the reference. I'm going to give you the video from David, uh, what's his name, Dr. Wallace. Go watch that. You know, he's, he's got the actual quotations there. If I get it wrong, it's my fault, but you know, I'm, I'm giving you the source material, so go watch, go watch that instead. Um, it's basically something about how to cast out demons. And uh, in the original manuscript, it says something like, uh, this kind of demon cannot be cast out through, um, through, through this method alone. Uh, only prayer will work on this kind of demon. Um, Jesus says that. And somewhere, some, some scribe has inserted prayer and fasting. And fasting. Okay, I mean, that's a doctrinal difference. That, that changes doctrine. That does. But does it change doctrine fundamentally? No, it doesn't. It doesn't change anything about the fundamental doctrine of Jesus Christ's divinity. It doesn't change what we Christians believe in. It doesn't change anything that we think is true and accurate about the personhood of Jesus Christ, about his divine nature and his earthly nature. It changes nothing about what we think of him. It changes nothing about his ministry about what he said, about what he preached. It changes absolutely nothing. It's just an insertion that changes whether or not you should fast before throwing out a demon or not. Okay, that's it. The only people that that matters to are the specialized rosary rafflers, you know, the specialized Catholics who actually perform exorcisms. For them, it's a challenge. And if you read um, uh, the... Uh, What's it called? An exorcist, an exorcist tells his story, which uh, Rita Veritas sent to me actually in PDF form. It's really cool of him. Um, by uh, Father Gabriel Amorth of the Catholic Church. Uh, fascinating book. I mean, really fascinating book. Go look it up if you can. Um, he will say, he writes in that book that yes, fasting will help in these situations. You want to purify yourself before confronting a demon uh, that has possessed someone or that is oppressing someone. Uh, so fasting does help. Does it change fundamental doctrine about Jesus? No, it doesn't. Uh, another example given later on is in the book of Revelations. Excuse me, the book of Revelation, not plural. Uh, this is a well-known one. This is about uh, the number of the beast. Uh, and behold, uh, uh, you know, uh, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil sends the beast with wrath, because he knows the time is short. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. Trust me, I didn't memorize that from the Bible. I actually got it because it's, it's, in, the, it's in the prologue of one of my favorite Iron Maiden songs. It's one of the best Maiden songs of all time. It's in, you know, it's in the song, The Number of the Beast, um, which is, uh, I mean... It's from the Number of the Beast album, the title track. Um, this is a song that got the band into a lot of trouble in the U.S. because all the you know fundamentalist Bible thumping Christians were all like up in arms. You know, this is a satanic worship song. It's like, guys, come on, I mean, chill out. It, you know, you look at Iron Maiden. I mean, most of the band members are Christians, either you know avowed or kind of um, you know like lay Christians. The drummer, Nico McBrain, is a devout Christian, and he loves playing this song on stage. The song itself is about a bad dream that the, the bass player had, you know, Steve Harris, the main lyricist and writer. So, uh, guys, come on, you know, relax. It, it's not a big deal. But anyway, um, that number, 666, is in, the, uh, in some of the original New Testament manuscripts is not 666, it's 616. Okay, that's a substantial change. That's significant. Does it affect the way we think about Jesus and about what he said? I mean, do we go around saying, I believe that, you know, um, that uh, God the Father sent Jesus, um, 
his his beloved son uh, to be born of the Virgin Mary uh, and to die on a cross and be resurrected and the number of the beast is 666? Is that really part of our fundamental doctrine? No, it's not. We believe all the, all the, all the stuff before that but we don't think anything about 666. If it's, six, if it's 616, if it's 666, who cares, right? When, when the devil, uh, when the end times come, and the devil, I mean, there's a lot of people, I mean, there are friends of mine who will say they're coming right now, <laughs> like we're in the middle of it. Um, people have been saying that for 2,000 years, so, you know, make of it what you will. But um, when people... When when the end times come and when the signs are there in front of us, they will be unmistakable. So when the second coming of the King of Kings is announced, it will be unmistakable. Will the mark of the beast be 666 or 616? I don't know. I don't really care. Because I know that what matters is the second coming of the King of our Lord. That's what matters. Alright? These are the things which, you know, a lot of Christians get into really silly food fights about. We don't need to. I want to close on this subject by pointing out something, a brilliant line of argumentation, I thought it was absolutely phenomenal, made by Dr. Frank Turek who is one of the best Christian apologists I've ever seen. This is a really cool guy. I mean, he's, he's fit, he's handsome, he's, he's, he's a solid dude, very sharp mind, uh, obviously keeps himself in excellent shape, unlike most apologists who spend all their time in the library. This guy actually spends time in the gym. Um, a bit like William Lane Craig, you know, he understands that a strong mind requires a strong body. Um, so Dr. Frank Turek was uh, standing in front of a crowd and explaining why we have so many different manuscripts and why they disagree with each other. His argument is as follows, and to me this is phenomenal. If God wanted us to have one true copy of the Old and New Testaments, what would have happened? They would have been entrusted into the hands of a man, or of some men. Man is, by definition, flawed, fallen, and broken, sinful by nature. What would have been the inevitable end result? Those scriptures would have been taken and corrupted at some point. It's guaranteed because we are men, because we are human. So what happened instead? The original scriptures are lost. We don't claim to have the original Old and New Testaments. If you are a Christian and you're making this claim, please stop. You're wrong. We don't have the originals. We do have tremendous amounts of manuscript evidence to tell us what the original said. What do we have instead? We have a huge distribution of 25,000 plus manuscripts, some of them complete, some of them in fragments, which give us an idea and an understanding of what the original said. And the more we look at all of these manuscripts, the more we can compare, the more we can contrast, the more that we can do textual criticism and redacted criticism and source criticism, historical criticism, and so on and so forth. The more we can critically examine these texts, the more we can throw out that which we think is later and added in, and the more we can delineate the passages in the Bible which we think were inserted at a later date, such as, for example, John uh, chapter 7, verse 53 to verse uh, chapter 8, verse 11. The, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery. That was probably a that was added in at a later date. We know that. The earliest manuscripts don't have it. I mean, my ESV Bible shows that very clearly. It's there in the text. It's marked down. So, we don't have to worry about this problem. What God did instead was to distribute out a huge plethora of manuscripts we could later examine and cross-examine. And what do we find? We find that the more we examine them, the more we look at them, the more they agree with each other in particular places, the closer we get with higher, ever higher degrees of certainty to what the original said. In other words, God created the very first blockchain. Think about that. God, at the beginning of time, understood the need for a blockchain, and billions of years later, we understand it today 
as the foundation of a currency. That should be reason to pause for thought and marvel at the brilliance of God. The one last point I want to raise on the subject is um, about the so-called corruption of the New Testament. Uh, Muslims love to point out that uh, you know the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of John, was discovered in its latest and last of the Gospels. Okay, two points in that regard. Number one, it used to be thought by a lot of Christians actually that the Gospel of John was fanciful and mythical because it was you know it wasn't available until like 150 A.D. or thereabouts. So it was the earliest copy of the Gospel. And there's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. So it was often thought that John did not actually know Jesus, but kind of made up a lot of stuff. It was an apocryphal gospel. Then, some time ago, um, you know, in the recent, relatively recent past, though, a tiny credit card-sized fragment of the Gospel of John was found. And it was sent to four different laboratories. And all four came up with the same estimate, that this, this fragment was printed somewhere between 90 and 120 A.D., 130 A.D., something like that, with the best consensus being around 95 to 100 A.D. That means that the Gospel of John, which again, this is a copy of a copy of a copy, was almost certainly printed before 60 A.D. Why? Because if you look in John chapter 5, I think it is, and it talks about the, the fountain of Bethesda in the present tense, so this is before the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 76 AD. And it is before uh, the execution of Paul. And it is before the execution of um, the other uh, apostles. So most likely, the Gospel of John was written sometime around 60 AD. And if you look at the other synoptic Gospels, Mark was probably written first, yes. Matthew and Luke followed after that, yes. But these are not the earliest New Testament texts. The epistles are actually earlier than that. The epistles of the Apostle Paul were written earlier than the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is referred to as one of his traveling companions, as one of Paul's traveling companions, as well as one of Peter's traveling companions. This is astonishing. We have first-hand documentary evidence of our Lord walking this earth within 20 years of his death. That's amazing. That's what we have to deal with in the body of Christian knowledge. That's what we have right now. Now let's turn to Islam. And, um, you know, hopefully I've dealt with this issue of corruption in the Christian text. There, If there's corruption, we would have found it by now. We have a hell of a lot of documentary evidence. Now let's look at Islam. Islam makes the claim that its gospels, its, its revelations have been completely unchanged since the beginning of time. That's bullshit. And the reason it's bullshit has become very clear of late. Muslims... I challenge you to one thing and one thing only. You say that you have a copy of the Quran. You know, you have uh, your Quran has been unchanged since it was revealed to Muhammad to the time it is today. Prove it. Show it to me. Show me a mushaf that goes back to uh, what you claim the first printing of the Quran was. Prove it. Show me that. Show me that manuscript. Show me that mushaf that corresponds exactly to the 1985 King Fahd edition of the Qur'an that is popular and used by 90% of the world's Muslims today. If you can't do that, then stop making this claim because it's absurd. It's ridiculous. Here's the actual story which most Westerners don't know about how the Qur'an was compiled. So, in 632 AD, okay, this is, this is coming from Islamic sources, okay, the, the actual historical evidence is even more different. But most Muslims don't even know what their own sources tell them. The actual sources say the following in, uh, the Sirat and the Hadith and the Sunnah and the Tafsir and the Tahrik, all of that stuff. This is what emerges out of that picture. The, in, in 632, the prophet dies. In 634, the, the Battle of Yamama, um, 70 Muslims are killed, thereabouts, who had memorized the Quran. And um, the remaining ulema come back to the, the caliph at the time, the, the, the caliph Abu Bakr, and they say to him, uh, we got a huge problem. We're losing tens of, you know, like, huge amounts of the Quran is being lost because people who have memorized it are dying in battle. So Abu Bakr says, okay, fine, you're, you know, you got, you're right, we've got a problem. Uh, 
He goes to Zayd ibn Tabit, uh, the secretary of Muhammad, and he says to Zayd ibn Tabit, write down, gather up all the Quran from all the leaves and bark and bits of stone and bits of wood and bits of bone and from the memories of all the brothers and write it down. And Zayd ibn Tabit says, you can't ask me to do this. I mean, even the Prophet didn't want this done in his time. How can you ask me to do something the Prophet didn't want done? But then you know, somehow Allah opened up his mind and said something and yeah, I mean, basically, he said, yeah, okay, fine, I'll do it. So he compiles a copy of the Quran, the holiest of holies, the greatest revelation of all time, and so on and so forth. What did they do with it? They stick it under the bed of Muhammad's wife, Hafsa. Like, what? I mean, you've got the greatest revelation ever, and you stick it under somebody's bed. Okay, I mean, that's what their sources say. Don't, you know, don't bitch at me about this. That's what they say. So anyway, 20 years pass. Uh, this is from 634 to about 652, so 18 years. Um, a bunch of Muslims go up to, from, from the Hejaz region, go up to Azerbaijan to fight against um, the, the Christians in Armenia. Uh, and it, it, a massive battle uh, ensues, uh, or is about to take place, and uh, the Meccan and Medina, you know, the Hejazi um, Arabs, are in a mosque praying alongside their Azerbaijani compatriots. And the Hijazi Arabs are listening to their fellow Muslims reciting the Quran in a completely different way from what they're used to. And they're like, they're really pissed off. They get really angry. A fist fight breaks out. And Qudaifa is one of uh, the, at the time the Caliph was uh, supposedly Uthman, runs straight back down to the Hijaz region, talks to uh, Uthman and says, dude, we got a huge problem here. These people are reciting the Quran differently. And Uthman says, okay, now we got, you're right, we got a problem. Talks to Zayd ibn Tabit and says, pull out that copy of the Quran that Hafsa uh, has, and then talk to my three sons-in-law, relatives of mine, not scholars, not translators, no, nothing like that. Talk to my sons-in-law and compile one, ver one Quran that is in the Qurayshi dialect, the, the version of Arabic that we all speak in this region. So, you know, these four people do it, and then... Uthman sends out one copy of each of, uh, of, of this Qur'an to uh, various cities. You know, he sends one to uh, Stesiphon, which is modern-day Baghdad, another one to Damascus, uh, Damashki, or whatever it's called, uh, another one to Fustat, which is modern-day Cairo, uh, another one to somewhere else, uh, um, Samarkand, I think, uh, and he keeps another several copies in Mecca and Medina. And then he burns all the other copies of the Qur'an. Now, wait a second. Why would you burn copies of the Qur'an if it's God's protected word? I thought Muslims claimed that there was no variation whatsoever. Where did that claim come from? Where did it go? Oh, their own sources just destroyed it. Okay. Um, then you will find uh, in their own sources, again... There were lots of different Rahwi. Uh, Rawis uh, are readers, basically, scholars of the Qur'an, who took the Qur'an and recited it to their own students in their own way. And each of these students took that and recited that to other students in their own ways. And this is where you get this huge problem of all the proliferating Qira'at, the, the Ahruf and the Qira'at. Um, and it got so smelly at one point, that another recension had to take place uh, at some point, I think in the ninth century, where uh, an Islamic scholar sat down and compiled a list of um, ten accepted, you know, creme de la creme recitations of the Quran and said, these ten, these are the ones we should use. But he didn't do any source criticism. He didn't do any textual criticism. He didn't examine them to see if there were any differences. He just said, these are the ten. Why? Not based on historical veracity, but on popularity, on how many students each of these teachers had. Okay, interesting. Then we fast forward another 400 years, and another recension takes place. So three recensions have taken place of the Qur'an by this point. Already, the whole narrative of perfect preservation is bunk, it's garbage, it's nonsense. There is no such thing. Their own sources admit this. Their own sources even admit that large portions of the Quran were lost over time. That different, uh, that that different prophets, uh, the different companions of the prophet recited it in different ways. Um, the guy who was like the, the the foremost among the companions at reciting the Quran actually left out Surah One because he was like, "That's just a prayer. It's not something that the prophet actually said. It's just a prayer, so we don't include it." Um, there were prophet, there were companions of the prophet who 
compiled their own versions of the Quran, one had only 111 surahs instead of 114. One had only 112 surahs instead of 114. One had two extra surahs, 116. Uh, the Islamic sources say very clearly that a uh, when in, in uh, after the Prophet died, Aisha, his uh, his child bride, whom you know he, I mean Muhammad was a pedophile, so he uh, married Aisha at the age of six and consummated the relationship at the age of nine. Lord, that's disgusting. But anyway, um, so. There is a hadith which is classified as uh, sahih, which is meaning, you know, validated, verified, um, which says, a tame sheep came in while we were mourn mourning the death of the Prophet and ate the verses concerning stoning and breastfeeding an adult. So those aren't in the Quran at all. And that's true. You, you will not find any evidence in the Quran at all that says a woman should be stoned for adultery. That's true. Islamic scholars will throw that in your face and see and say, see, Islam is a religion of peace. No, it's not, but okay. Apparently that verse used to exist. It doesn't anymore. Okay, so the myth of perfect preservation is gone. And then, you know, you, you fast forward into the 14th century and the 15th century, and there are two further ascensions that take place. And then you go all the way to uh, 1924 at Al-Azhar University in Cairo. Uh, there was a crisis at the time where Islamic students from all the various madrasas were giving answers to standardized tests in Cairo, and they were all getting different answers. And why were they getting different answers? Because they were all using different Qurans. And the Qurans had differences in them, significant ones. Uh, so the, some Islamic scholar, I forget his name, said, okay, we're going to take the Hafs Quran. Why? Because the Hafs Quran was preferred by the Ottomans. But Hafs was not among the original ten readers. He was not among the chosen ten from all the way back in the 10th century, or the 9th century, whenever it was. Why? I mean, the sources themselves say that Hafs was untrustworthy, he lied, he uh, transmitted the Quran incorrectly, he uh, added stuff in that he wasn't supposed to, that no one should ever trust uh, Hafs or his teacher, Asim. No one should trust this transmission line. So why is it the Qur'an today? What's going on here? And then you look at this issue of variance in the different versions of the Qur'an. I mean, if you look at the Hafs version versus the Warsh version, the Warsh Qur'an is very popular in North Africa because you know a different group or a different tribe or a different um, conquest of Islam took place in North Africa. That Qur'an does have 5,000 differences with Hafs, the, the Hafs version. And some of these are serious differences. Uh, there's one specific difference which I want to highlight, and there are lots more. You can go look them up on Bernie Powers, Dr. Bernie Powers' website, or you can look them up on Fanda Films, or you can go to uh, DCCI, uh, Defending Christ, Critiquing Islam. Um, one specific verse says, uh, it, it's about Ramadan, and if you are fasting and you cannot, uh, you are commanded to fast, but you are unable to do so. In the Hafs version, it says you must feed one poor person, a poor person, and then you will be excused from your obligation of fasting. Okay, fine. The Hafs, that's what the Hafs version says. The Warsh version says uh, you must feed poor people. Okay, now, Arabic is a Semitic language. In the Warsh version, when it says poor people, plural, what that means is three or more. Um, how many poor people are you supposed to feed? Three people? Four? Five? Ten? A hundred? Doesn't tell you. That's a huge doctrinal difference. It's enormous. It, that fundamentally changes an issue of doctrine in Islam. Islam is a religion of works. You gain salvation by doing good things, according to what the rules are. You don't gain salvation by having a direct, proper, personal relationship between you and God. So, which one is it? One poor person or many poor people. That's huge. So don't, you know, Muslims, please don't preach to us about this myth of perfect preservation. It's not there. You don't have a perfectly preserved Quran. And this is before we even get to the issue of the Rasm, the skeletal texts. Um, I'll go over them very briefly, but basically there are, um, if you go to the Islamic Awareness website, they'll give you a, a whole song and dance about how they can get 97% of the Quran within the first century after the Prophet's death. That's bunk. That's bullshit. If you actually look at the graph that they got on their website, the the biggest 
most of the Quran that they're getting comes from little tiny fragments and you know um, parchments and uh, and folios. The bulk of the Quran comes from these big you know um, parchments that they have. But if you actually look at the carbon dating on those skins, the the biggest pieces of the Quran that they have do not come from the the time that Islamic awareness says they come from. They actually come from much later. That in itself blows that narrative out of the water. Now you go back to look at the six major manuscripts that Islam claims are the Quran. The Topkapi, the Samarkand, the Ma'il, the Petropontinus, um, the, the, what's it called, the, the, the Husseini in Cairo, and the Sana'a manuscript. Okay. The Topkapi is housed in Istanbul. The Samarkand is actually in Russia. It's, um, it used to be in Tashkent, in Uzbekistan. It's now, I think, in, in Russia. Uh, in the uh, National Museum or something like that. The Petropontinus, which is housed in Paris. The Husseini, which is in Cairo. The, uh, the Ma'il, which is, uh, I think it's in London, I think. Uh, I could easily be wrong about that, please don't quote me. Uh, and the Sana, which is, um, well, it's in Yemen, I forget exactly where. All six of these manuscripts have huge problems with them. The Samarkand used to be like the, the, the pride and joy of the Islamic world. It's now an embarrassment. The person who wrote it, I mean, two Islamic scholars did a, an extensive study of all these manuscripts back in 2009. And every single case, all of these six cases, they said, these are not Uthmanic manuscripts. They don't back, they don't date back to 652 AD. These are not, uh, original Arabic in nature. They are not, the the Quran as we expected it to be. Most of them are not complete. Most of them have significant damage and most of them have significant alterations to the texts. Dr. Daniel Brubaker um, wrote a book called uh, Variant, uh, Variations in the uh, uh, Corrections in the Original Quranic Manuscripts. I, you know, he wrote a book based on his PhD thesis. Um, I forget the exact title. I'll see if I can find it later. He went and gave 20 examples with photographs of exactly where these variations are between all of the manuscripts. These are not small issues. These are skeletal texts, meaning they lack the, the dots and the, the vowelizations which make it pronounceable in Arabic because of the kind of the weird way that the Arabic script works. Those variations are significant. There are erasures in the Quranic manuscripts. There are corrections. There are insertions. There are deletions. These are not early Qurans, the way that we would understand it today. These are different, radically different, substantially different from what we have today. The Quran is not perfectly preserved and never has been. That is what the evidence tells us today. I want to close... Um, as I always do nowadays with, you know, on the subject of Islam. To my Muslim friends who are listening, if you are, I, I seriously doubt it, but if you are, you have been ripped off and lied to and deceived by evil people your whole lives. And I say this with great compassion because I grew up around Muslims. I live among Muslims today. I don't want you to feel as though I'm attacking you personally because I'm not. I'm attacking your heretical blasphemous faith because it is a man-made religion which exists to deceive you and to lead you astray. You want a perfectly preserved revelation. You want something that is eternal, uh, un eternal, revealed, you know, sent down, complete and unchanging. We've got what you want. We have him. His name is Jesus Christ. Is he eternal? Yes, he is. Was he revealed? Was he sent down to us? Yes, he was. Was he complete? Is he complete? Yes, he is. Is he unchanging? Yes, he is. Come on home. Come on home. Come to Jesus. We've got what you're looking for. Come on home to the Bible. Come on home to Jesus Christ. Come back. You have everything you need. You have a faith in God that we find amazing. It's wonderful that you have such strong faith. You have a belief in heaven and hell. You have a belief in sin. You have a belief in Jesus as you understand him, which is wrong, but you have an understanding of him. So just come on home. 
I've run out of time, but uh, this has been fun. I uh, hope you learned something from it. And uh, as always, please like, share, and subscribe. This is Didactic Mind, episode 58, Burning Books and Burning Truths. And this is Didact, signing off.